famous Michelle Jackson in the upper room, grade five, six, and seven. Have a blast. And we get Grandpa Dave. Oh, yeah. That's not getting old anytime soon. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Sattler, one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church. I want to say thank you for joining us here in person and for those who are watching online. It's great to be together today. Today, we continue our series in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah and God's great faithfulness. It's 7th century BC, and the people of God have lost their way again. And Jeremiah is commissioned to call out and to call back God's people at the time of Israel's last gasp as a sovereign nation. Hedging their bets by appealing to powers other than God, Israel has committed double idolatry. They've replaced their creator with images of other foreign gods made of wood and stone. And they've denied their own special God who married himself to Israel in the covenant at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah's message to the people of God, repent or there will be consequences. Not a sexy message. More is known about the inner life of Jeremiah than any other prophet. And today we focus on the person of Jeremiah and specifically the prayer life of this very relatable prophet. By human definition, Jeremiah's career is a total failure. When he spoke, few took his message seriously. Yet, Jeremiah faithfully and admirably sticks with God's assignment all the way to the end. For 41 years, Jeremiah ministers, and he agonizes over the message he's, to, he's supposed to deliver, and he rues the conduct and plight of his people. As one commentator puts it, the sensitive Jeremiah rose to the challenge but not without loud cries of protest. The result of this hard training can be seen in his fortitude right through to the end of his comfortless career. Jeremiah's first person outbursts, and there are many of them, they are raw, they're graphic, and they're deeply personal and unique in biblical prophecy. His intensity and complexity catches one's attention. The prophet's honest prayers read like the great laments of the Psalms, and they come off like some of Job's gut-wrenching tirades or speeches. In crying out to God, Jeremiah reveals his deepest inner thoughts and feelings. And I believe there's much to learn from Jeremiah about praying honest prayers. So now to whet your appetite for the sermon, I'm bringing back something I haven't done in a very long while. I'm going to bring back a Sattler pop quiz, or we'll call it a straw poll today. I have a series of questions. There will be two possible answers for each question. You can scorecard them on your sermon notes, or because there'll be a diagnostic at the end. Or you could, if you're bold enough, put a show of hands in too, uh, so we can get a feel for it. Be honest, I'll say. Okay. First question is this. When things don't go your way, do you, A, tend to run away and sulk, or B, stick with it and battle on? Okay, how many of you vote for A, run away and sulk? The only honest people out here, all right? How many of you vote for B, stick with it and battle on? Okay, good, write that in your program. Okay, question number two. When you have doubts in your faith, do you usually A, express them, or B, suppress them? Okay, 
How many of you vote for A? When you have doubts in your faith, you express them, okay? How many of you vote for B? Suppress them. Okay, yeah, all right. This sermon will be good for you. Uh, Question number three. Do you expect Christian leaders to be A, always strong and put together, or B, broken and real from time to time? How many of you vote for A? Oh, that's really reassuring. How many of you vote for B? Oh, I feel a lot better. (laughs) Okay, so if you voted B-A-B, I think you'll appreciate Jeremiah. If not, well, you'll just have to listen anyways. (laughs) So after the campaign of national spiritual renewal, based on the rediscovered books of the Mosaic Law, King Josiah sends Jeremiah on a preaching tour of the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. And today we come to Jeremiah 11 and 12, a story that chronicles scenes from the early years of Jeremiah's ministry. And we'll quickly see that any ministry honeymoon Jeremiah may have been enjoying comes to an abrupt end here. For as herald of the king, there's a murder plot afoot against him. Jeremiah 11, beginning at verse 18, words are on the big screen. You could also fire it up on your phone or turn to it in your Bibles. There's blue Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. Jeremiah 11, beginning at verse 18. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it. For at that time, he showed me what they were doing, Jeremiah says. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the people of Anathoth, who are, treating, who are threatening to kill you, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them, because I will bring disaster on the people of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. And Jeremiah cries out to God, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. And God answers Jeremiah, if you have raced with men and foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble in safe country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these challenging words, difficult to understand, raw, 
emotional, and powerful. God, we ask today that you would come and speak to us from these words in the book of Jeremiah, written many thousands of years ago. God, I pray that you would come now and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your Spirit. Spirit of God, would you do what only you can do, and that's apply the truth of God's word to each heart here today. God, we invite you to come and speak to us now. We are hungry to hear from you. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Well, Anathoth is one of the early stops on Jeremiah's great preaching tour. It's just five kilometers northeast of Jerusalem, and it's a sleepy, priest-ridden village, and it's Jeremiah's hometown. The excitement of the townspeople at a visit from King Josiah's commissioners with their homeboy, Jeremiah, billed as one of the keynotes, quickly turns to dismay when they hear his message. The Lord Almighty who planted you has decreed disaster for you because the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done evil and provoked me to anger, God says, by burning incense to Baal. The Jeremiah, the son of a priest of Anathoth, was calling for this, branded him a traitor. And this would not be the last time. The people of Anathoth hated Jeremiah for exposing their sin. And to Jeremiah's surprise, God reveals his own family is conspiring against him, threatening to kill if he doesn't stop prophesying. Well, Jeremiah would escape this murder plot, but he would not escape their banishment. And the reality is that sometimes we are asked to confront our own people, family, friends, church, our community. Calling out sin is an increasingly risky business these days in our world that champions individual desire and prizes personal freedom. And it hurts when loved ones are unreceptive or misunderstand our motives or are harder on us than anyone else. Are we willing to pay that price? Well, Jeremiah is caught between his people and God. And the Lord steps in, I will punish them, God says to Jeremiah. And fixating on those who oppose us and what we'll do to get back at them is never good use of our energy. So in effect, God is saying here, Jeremiah, my boy, leave your enemies to me and back, get back on with the task to which I have called you. And there's a sweet twist here. I bet none of you came to church today with the people of Anathoth, the Anathothians on your mind. Did anybody come to church? Were you driving here today and you were thinking, I really hope to hear a sermon on the Anathothians? Anybody? Okay. Ironically, their names have been largely blotted from the history books. While the story of Jeremiah lives on, it's been taught and preached now for centuries. Jeremiah, rather shockingly, pours out his not-so-pretty emotions to the Lord often. And here he begins, yes, by acknowledging God's righteousness. You, Lord Almighty, judge righteously, but quickly moves to vitriol. Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Which might be something like praying, God, go get them. Besides, you owe me for all I've done for you. Whoa, it's a little close to home. 
Later, Jeremiah ramps up his hyperbole, exaggerating the doom. Drag my enemies off like sheep to be butchered. And let me just say, it is okay to tell God how we really feel. I mean, he already knows. (laughs) It's just good for him to hear us say it. Then he knows that we know that he knows. But didn't he know that already? Jeremiah's worn down. He's got tunnel vision. He's become somewhat absorbed in self-pity. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? These are age-old questions. Private, nagging, intellectual doubts. And it's hard when what we see, the facts, don't fit our faith. When our convictions, the things we've learned in church about how life ought to be, or how God's supposed to act, don't always match our life experiences. And over and over again, Jeremiah complains, I mean prays, sensitive, honest, crying out to God throughout the book. Lord, why did you deceive me? Chapter 15, verse 10. Lord, why did you make me do this job? Chapter 18, 20. He even drops the big bomb. God, why was I even born? Chapter 15, verse 20. Here's the point. Prayer is the best place for these sorts of doubts and questions to be sorted out. Talking to God about our enemies is the most productive venue to vent our dark thoughts and feelings. The pathway to lasting faith, I believe, is through this raw wrestling with God in prayer. For prayer is not simply monologue, but dialogue. It's listening to God as well. And God answers Jeremiah's rent prayer, not philosophically. Jeremiah, here's exactly why all this is happening. God rarely answers that. But pastorally, God says, Jeremiah, here's how we'll make it through this together. And the Lord offers a word picture that's, I believe, dripping with loving sarcasm. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, Jeremiah, how can you possibly compete with horses? Now, this is still early on in his career, and I'm sure that Jeremiah's ambitions are likely bigger than his stamina. And so the Lord is saying, if you think this is bad, how are you going to cope when things get really difficult? You want to run with horses now, and you can't even keep up with the old men? Don't overestimate yourself, Jeremiah, God says. Don't forget just how dependent on me you are. And history shows that Jeremiah was deeply impacted by this direct and intimate prayer exchange with God. Jeremiah listened. He weighed his options. And then he makes the rest of his life his answer. Lord, with your help, I will run with the horses. Well, as you can imagine, it's time now to land the plane on some application points. And the overarching idea I present is this. That Jeremiah, I believe, models for us the importance of being both honest with God in prayer and faithful to God in service. And these two things, honesty with God in prayer and faithfulness to God in service, I believe go hand in hand. I offer four application points today, and the first is this. We can always bring our impossible situations to God in prayer. 
Jeremiah is fully sold out to God. Still, his life is far from easy. And this is the stretching life of faith to which God calls his people. And I believe there's some wonderful parallels between the life of the prophet Jeremiah and our Savior, Jesus' life. Like Jeremiah, when Jesus returns here to his hometown and speaks in the synagogue, his friends and family are infuriated and they plot to kill him by throwing him off the local cliff in Nazareth. I took that picture when I was in Nazareth 10, year, Nazareth 10 years ago. Perhaps Jesus even has Jeremiah in mind when he delivers the final beatitude at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The story of Jeremiah is proof that a life of faith is not nearly as straightforward as we'd like it to be. So, What impossible situations do you find yourself in today? Facing opposition at work, at school, at home? Maybe you've been persecuted or mocked for your faith recently. It hurts a lot, I know. When nothing's going right and no one seems to be listening, where do we go? Who do we turn to then? Jesus, too, like Jeremiah and like us, suffers persecution, opposition. Jesus faced impossible situations. Today, may it be a comfort to us to know that our Savior, Jesus, understands. And he's right there with us in the midst of it. When God is least visible, when we're tempted to think that he's forgotten us, we can be sure that God is still present right with us, ready to battle on our behalf. And when people attack us, we mustn't take the bait or throw our enemy's game right back at them, even when we're tempted to do so. We must leave justice in God's capable hands. Many years ago, I fell victim to some people who appeared to have it in for me. Their treatment felt unfair. Their actions made my blood boil. And I felt alone like few cared or would come to my rescue. Starting to come unglued emotionally, I decided to talk to God about my impossible situations, to turn my eyes to him. I'll say truthfully, that was my last resort. There was shouting, crying, and vitriol mixed into my prayers. But as the pain spilled from my lips, God also began to work on my heart. And months later, I bumped into the very people who had opposed me, And just when I started to panic in their presence, I felt a beautiful wave of love flow to them, for them, from my heart. It could only be a work of God the Holy Spirit. We can and should always bring our impossible situations to God in prayer. And God meets us there. Second point. We can always bring our fears and doubts to God in prayer. Jeremiah's a man not afraid to express his true thoughts and feelings to God. This, I believe, serves the prophet well. It keeps him close to God's heart, and it carries him throughout his rather difficult life and ministry. Yes, Jeremiah's public ministry was strong. 
His message is powerful and forthright. Yet when we delve into his private prayer life, we see a very different Jeremiah. He's full of questions and doubts, fears, hesitation, and brokenness. Hmm, I can relate. So I think can Jesus. Again, another parallel. Mere days before the cross, Mark 14 picks up the story. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him. And he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, Jesus said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet... Not what I will, but what you will. Problem is, we tend to shy away from Gethsemane moments with God. But if Jesus can bring his doubts, his fears to his Father in prayer, so can and so must we. So what doubts or fears are you carrying today? Maybe you're feeling down about your future or just plain lost. This past year, few years have been particularly difficult on youth and young adults, new Canadians, adults who live it alone. Future seems bleak. Losses piling up. Loss of relationships. Loss of health. Loss of finances. Loss of direction. Loss of hope. God, where are you in all of this? What am I to do? Why am I even here? And our uncertainties, our torn emotions, are all fair game with God. No lament of ours is too big or too offside to shock or to turn God away. He can and sh- we can and should always bring our fears and doubts to God in prayer. For in prayer, God visits us, not always with clean answers, But when we make time to cry out to him and to listen to him, God lovingly aligns our will with his and points us in the right direction. Third application. God calls us to serve even in our weakness. At the first sign of opposition, Jeremiah caves emotionally. He may have talked a big game, but when rubber meets the road, Jeremiah turtles in weakness. Yet, God meets Jeremiah right there and picks him back up. Forty years ago, I was playing for my youth soccer team in a huge cup game out in Port Coquitlam, and I scored the game-winning goal for the other team. With seconds remaining... Score tied 1-1. And our opponents pressing, I stuck my leg out to block a shot. And the ball ricocheted off my leg into the bottom corner, and our goalkeeper was in the far corner. And not long after, the referee blew for full time, and I collapsed on the pitch and lay there for what felt like an eternity. None of my teammates came near me. I was shattered. Then I felt a hand on my chest. It was my father. He picked me up. He consoled me. And he led me 
to the sidelines into the car and drove me home. It was a profound moment of weakness, one which God has used in my life, along with many others, countless parenting and marriage gaffes, lying in my ordination interview, big mistakes I've made in life and ministry. One writer says, God does not make his call to his servants conditional upon their purging themselves of weakness. It is precisely in their weakness and frailty, even in their rebellion, that God calls his servants. So it was with Jeremiah. So it is through all the pages of Scripture. And so it is today. Maybe you've been thinking to yourself, God could never use me. I've made too many mistakes. I've got a rap sheet a mile long. What if people find out? What if God finds out who I really am? Wouldn't he or they reject me in an instant? Simply not true. Truth is, God already knows everything about us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And God still loves us more than we could ever imagine and wants to employ us as his servants and shine through us. There are, sorry to say, no perfect people, prophets, or pastors. God calls us to serve even in our weakness. Truthfully, I prefer God to use the great things about me, my superior skills, my dynamic personality, my good looks. (laughs) Yet, far too often, it's been my weaknesses exposed that God has used most mightily because his power is revealed most powerfully through our weakness. Fourth and final application. A life of faithful service to God is totally worth it. God's call is to an all-in, lived-out faith that we have the choice to step into, not just with our heads, but with our hearts and actions too. Jeremiah arouses a passion for a full life of faith, says one biblical scholar. At the same time, he firmly shuts the door against attempts to achieve it through self-promotion, self-gratification, or self-improvement. I guess you could say I, too, am in the similar business to Jeremiah. And in times of sober self-reflection, I often feel like my life, my impact, my success in my work is marginal at best. (laughs) And I'm reminded, I can't control success. I'm not responsible for changing people. I can't reach in and turn anyone's heart toward God other than my own. Faithfulness to God is our one true marker of success. Have I been faithful to what God's called me to do today? We live in a world that preaches self-improvement. Find yourself, be the best version of yourself, live your best life. When the Christian story is not at all about self-achievement or self-improvement, but about true life that's found only in Jesus. It's why Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I, Jesus says, have come that you may have life and have it to the full. A life of faithful service to God is totally worth it. And that life of faith in God is truly the best life we can live. However, as, I, as I've said, this life is far from easy. Lately, God's been ministering to me through a song from Christine DeMarco. It's a line from the chorus that says this, and through it all, through it all, 
My eyes are on you, Jesus, and it is well with me. The task for which I'm most responsible is this. 